You're listening to the 1208-Bit Nerd Church Podcast. Join us on Discord. Welcome back to the 1208-Bit Nerd Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Jamin. And uh, there was a book that came out quite a long time ago. I think it was a Ted Decker book. I don't remember. I didn't quite read it. Uh, one of my brothers read it and really liked it. And then there was a movie that came out based around it. I think it was called House or something like that. Not like the doctor guy. It was more or less about a haunted house, which caused some questions to come up in the christian world of can you really have the genre of christian horror (laughs) and uh i think that's a a well-intentioned question you know because when we look at horror movies today uh we see a lot of obviously themes that uh are unwholesome and uh gross and even exalted that's where it especially gets weird and like in my own discernment of like horror movies that's one of the things i look for like is this movie exalting horror because uh, i remember there was a tv show i was watching at, at one point that um there's actually been like two or three tv shows that i've felt like convicted while watching just that like this show wasn't trying to tell a story of facing your horrors. It was almost like rooting for the horrors to win and kind of exalting it uh, to the point that, like, you as you're watching it are like, ooh, how much darker can they make this? I, I want to see where this goes. To the point that it you feel like this is not, you know, Paul once said about reflecting on that which is good and pure and lovely. And beating horrors, I think, is a good thing, but when suddenly it's exalted shows and media books whatever it is you're reading kind of take on another tone but should horror be absent from the christian narrative to that i'm uh, less inclined to believe so simply because our entire religion <laughs> our entire faith of christianity is based around a cross and i think the idea that like we would even say like can we have any element of horror whatsoever in our media as christians I think the the very fact that we ask that question kind of proves a point that we have become all too familiar with the story of the cross. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've found that in my life a hundred times where, uh, you know, it, it comes time to talk about the cross and, like, I'm almost zoned out. I've heard about it so much, like, it doesn't even phase me anymore. I'm just, like, sitting there like, yeah, of course. The cross uh, is a crucial part of of what Christianity is. My sins are forgiven there. You know, I I almost like pull out all the theology and and all I've left in place is, or sorry, I've almost pulled out all the horror and all I've left in place is just just the theology. I've heard it so many times. And partially, uh, part of the reason that we've heard it so many times because that's oftentimes, um, if you grew up, with the church in the same dimension in which I did, sorry, the same time period in which I did, then the cross was how you exited every single message that you ever preached, right? It's like you got to throw in the, the invitation to salvation at the end of every single message, and so let's talk about the cross 
in all of its details and, and what it did. And so like it, it becomes just like a way of ending every sermon to the point that you've heard it so much, you can kind of become desensitized to it. So I thought I would read out of uh, Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion, subtitle, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It's a very long book, um, and I'm going to read one section from it that is uh, taking a look at the cross in all of its excruciating detail. Not because I want to exalt horror or I want to exalt uh, uh, the gruesomeness of that. Uh, rather, because I want us to remain awake to what the cross really means and represented. And uh, uh, that when we hear about it, we don't just like tune out and think that like there's nothing horrifying in Christianity and it's all just blessing upon blessing and everything's great gee golly goodness and and you get your nice fancy cars and white picket house and all that you know when we talk about christianity in those lights as though god just wants to bless you with everything like the horrors are just completely entirely absent and that's not fair to the gospel uh, it's not fair to the martyrs of old the bible uh, shows us people giving up their lives left and right for the gospel right after Jesus dies. After Jesus dies, we get our first martyr, Stephen. And then by the time we get to Revelation, John is just writing pages upon pages of illustrations of, of saying, don't give up, church. Stay faithful to Jesus, even if they kill you all the way to the end. Don't give up, for there is great reward uh, and even some of that reward in a passage that's very complicated to understand. Uh, John talks about a first resurrection, and the ones who participate in that uh, before others are resurrected are the ones who were beheaded for Christ. So, like, whatever this first resurrection means, whether it's actually, like, something on a timeline or just, like, a way of saying something in a very Revelation-esque kind of way... There will be so many people in heaven who have been beheaded that that will have been a normal thing or martyred in some kind of form or fashion, right? That happens all around the world today. And we in the West, oftentimes we're just completely, um, completely absent of such horrors that we start to spend the gospel in in strange different lights uh, than the Bible itself spins it. So Jesus is is where that, that horror story uh, really begins and actually becomes a call to us, too, that if we're going to be true Christians, we're going to have to face horrors. We're going to have to uh, take up our cross and follow Christ, maybe all the way to the bitter end, depending on whether people uh, hate us to, to the level of killing us or not. So uh, let me read again out of Fleming Rutledge. And I'm going to read for quite a bit. So this just kind of helps us dive our minds into just how intense this was. The early theologian origin called Jesus' death the Mors Turpissima Crucis, the utterly vile death of the cross. Cicero, the great Roman statesman and writer, referred to crucifixion as summum supplicinium. I'll speak Latin, sorry. Uh, the supreme penalty, exceeding crematio, burning, 
and decolalatio, decapitation, in gruesomeness. Some rudimentary knowledge of what was taking place will help us understand these terms. The first phase of Roman execution was scourging. The lictors, Roman legionnaires assigned to this duty, used a whip made of leather cords to which small pieces of metal or bone had been fastened. Paintings of the scourging of Jesus always show him with a loincloth, but in fact the victim would have been naked, tied to a post in a position to expose the back and buttocks to maximum effect. With the first strokes of the scourge, skin would be pulled away and sub subcutaneous tissue exposed. As the process continued, the lacerations would begin to tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. This would result not only in great pain, but also in appreciable blood loss. The idea was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse of death. It was common for taunting and ridicule to accompany the procedure. In the case of Jesus, the New Testament tells us that the crown of thorns, a purple robe, and mock scepter were added to intensify the mockery. The condition of a prisoner after scourging just prior to crucifixion would depend upon several things. Previous, uh, several things. Previous physical condition, the enthusiasm of the lictors, and the extent of blood loss. In the case of Jesus, these things cannot be known. But the fact that he was apparently unable to carry the crossbar himself would indicate that he was probably in a severely weakened state and he may have been close to hypovolemia which is circulatory shock those being crucified were then paraded through the streets exposing them to the full scorn of the population when the procession reached the site of crucifixion the victims would see before them the heavy upright wooden post uh, or known as stipes, permanently in place, to which the patibulium was to be attached by the mortise and tenon joint. The person to be crucified would be thrown down on his back, exasperating the pain of the wounds from the scourging and introducing dirt into them. His hands would then be tied or nailed to the crossbar. Nailing seems to have been preferred by the Romans. Ossuary finds uh, have given us a clearer idea of how this was done. 2,000 years of Christian iconography notwithstanding, the nails were not driven into the palms, which could not support the weight of a man's body, but into the wrists. The patibulum was then hoisted on the stipes with the victim dependent from it, with the victim dependent from it, and the feet were tied or nailed this point, the process of crucifixion proper began. Victims of crucifixion lived on the crosses for periods varying from three or four hours to three or four days. It has often been remarked that Jesus' ordeal was relatively brief. Perhaps he was weakened by the scourging or had lost more blood than usual or suffered cardi cardiac rupture. We cannot know. In any case, it has been surmised that the major pathosiological effect of crucifixion beyond the excruciating pain was a marked interference with normal respiration, particularly exhalation. Passive exhalation, which we all do a thousand times a day without thinking about it, becomes impossible for a person hanging on a cross. The weight of a body hanging by its wrists would depress the muscles required for breathing out. Therefore, 
Each exhaled breath could be achieved by a tremendous effort. The only way to gain a breath at all would be by pushing oneself up from the legs and feet or pulling oneself up by the arms, either of which would cause intense agony. And to this primary factor, the following secondary ones. Bodily functions uncontrolled, insects feasting on wounds and orifices, unspeakable thirst, muscle cramps, bolts of pain from the severed median nerves in the wrists, scourged back scraping against the wooden stipes, is more than any of us are fully capable of imagining. The verbal abuse and other actions such as spitting and throwing refuse by the spectators, Roman soldiers, and passerbys added the final touch. The New Testament shows us life lived between two worlds, the Roman and the near Middle Eastern. Crucifixion was noxious enough in Roman eyes. Palestinian attitudes would have found it perhaps even more so. Middle Eastern cultures still have, to this day, an acute of personal honor lodged in the body. Sorry, an acute sense of personal honor lodged in the body. An amputation administered as punishment, for instance, would be seen as more than just physical cruelty or permanent handicap. It would mean that the amputee would carry the visible marks of dishonor and shame for the rest of her life. Anything done to the body would have been understood as exceptionally cruel, not just because it inflicted pain, but even more because it caused dishonor. Furthermore, the Passion accounts reflect, in part, a very ancient ritual of humiliation. The mocking of Jesus, the spitting and scorn, the inversion of his kingship, and the studious dethronement with the crown of thorns and the purple robe would have been understood as a central part of the total rite of infamy, of which the crucifixion itself is a culmination. Another aspect of crucifixion not widely noted is that the crucified person, gasping and heaving on his cross, is forced to be his own executioner. He's not even allowed the perverse dignity of having a human being corresponding to himself who hangs or decapitates him. He dies truly and completely alone with the weight of his own body killing him as it hangs, causing his own diaphragm to suffocate him. Alexander Solzhenitsyn described how in Stalin's Gulag, the prisoners were forced to sleep with their hands outside their blankets so that the simple gestures that are universally used by human beings to comfort their own bodies by stroking, massaging, or holding are impossible. There really is something particularly horrible about causing one's own body to turn against one, and in the case of crucifixion, actually becoming the instrument of one's exquisite suffering and asphyxiation. Nevertheless, having said this, we must, to some degree, set it all aside. Cannot know all the reasons for the retinence of the New Testament writers concerning the de details of the crucifixion, but a chief reason must have been that they wanted us to focus on something else. So she's then going to go on there to talk more about, um, um, you know, the, the big focuses of, of the cross and what it means theologically. Uh, but she does pause to give us a very gruesome, detailed look into... Um, the story of the cross, <laughs> what what exactly that would be like. You know, a lot of us have seen um, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie back in the day of um, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And that <laughs> surprised a lot of people when a Christian movie came out, it was rated R. Why was it rated R? Because it was a horror story. You know, the cross cannot be told simply. It cannot be told 
cleanly. It doesn't fit well into a PG-13 rating, especially not a PG or G rating, you know? And yet, uh, for the longest time, I had this picture of, like, the cross and, and Jesus on it, like, in my office. And it was a rather emo, kind of just, like, red and black shadows telling this, like, cross graphic right here. Yeah, giving a, a cross graphic right here, but, like... That just sits in my office like that's normal. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. And it most certainly was horrifying for Jesus. I mean, just imagine he gets to the point of actually sweating blood. When your anxiety is so high that you don't even know how to, like, sweat correctly and just blood starts coming out of your forehead. Like, that's an intense amount of anxiety. Jesus knew what he was walking into. Jesus was scared disturbed and he asked god you know if there's any other way we can go about this can we can we do it that way but not my will but your will be done so god if this is the way that we have to go then let it be so jesus was god with flesh on he felt it all you know there actually have been some uh theological theories put out over time that well no no he he wouldn't have gone through that somehow jesus had the supernatural ability to overcome pain absolutely not not only is that uh unjustifiable theologically um but like that's that's an attempt of us to try to pull out that pain because we don't want to deal with it ourselves but people have been dealing with it uh, ever since jesus jesus understood that if we followed him there's a possibility of horrors ahead of us because the world will not like us. We will not fit here. And all around the world, uh, there are people who accept Christ, who understand that when they accept Christ, they are putting their lives in danger, uh, that people might come and kill them for, for this commitment that they've made and the test of, like, if they're really going to, to stay Christian or not, like, that becomes real. In the West, when we accept Christianity, we're told that there's all this great stuff ahead of us. But in other cultures, like they know, oh, this is that forbidden thing, that if I accept this, people will kill me if they find out. And they have a cross to look at to say, well, my Savior went through that as well. Uh, so it's not like he's calling me into something that I myself uh, would be doing that he didn't do. And that's just something that sometimes is removed from us in the West, to the point that like, we see a, a horrific theme come up in a Christian book, and we're like, ooh, that's inappropriate. It's like, no, that's actually a part of the gospel, and that's hard. Nobody wants suffering. Nobody wants pain. But the Bible recognizes that that's just a, a constant part of what it means to be Christian. And the Bible calls people into um, finding... Uh, a joy in suffering that when you actually are persecuted for the the name of Jesus then then you yourself uh, have kind of taken on your own um, cross-like suffering in, in, in some way uh, the earliest disciples in acts after they've been taken into um, see the religious leaders and they're uh, uh, whipped for it they leave 
happy that they were able to suffer like Jesus did. And that's not the way that we think at all. You know, I'm not I'm not like a masochist. I'm not here to like, yeah, suffering. This is what what we all really want. Nobody wants that. Uh, but it is a part of what is honestly promised to us in the Bible. <laughs> um, it's not something that's just like, well, you know, if that comes, and that's a big if, you'll deal with it when it comes. No, actually, the Bible is like, look, your families are going to hate you. You're going to be separated. They might kill you. They might do all kinds of things. And yet, American Christianity is, if anybody challenges my freedoms, oh, I will I will come for you. Like, I will, I will deal with you directly, and I'll make a big stink out of it. It's like, no, look, freedom's rights, freedoms. As a Christian, that was never promised you. That is promised you in the age to come, but in this world, when you become a Christian, you become a part of heaven, and a part of heaven clashes with this world, and you will find yourself up against it time and time and time again, which will cause suffering. The good news is that the gospel uh, is propelled by suffering, and I know that sounds weird, but think of it. The gospel is born out of a man who was executed on the cross. That was capital punishment. Someone ended up in the electric chair, and the gospel just exploded because of that. You know, there's this famous old quote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that's been found to be true and true again. That when Christians are squashed or terminated or killed, it causes more Christians to rise up. The, the seed of heaven is a very hefty seed, and we see parables that, that tell that story as well. And so we ourselves, when we live into suffering, we give the gospel more space to, to continue. So what's the suffering that's going on in your life? Maybe it's more of an emotional sort. You know, we're still uh, kind of coming out of this age where COVID and pandemic is still an everyday conversation. Surely you've got suffering that's come out of that. What is that like? What's the horrors of your life right now? And how might you be able to turn that over to Jesus to find redemption in it and be able to tell a better story? Uh, who are you angry with? Who are you um, having problems with? Uh, what pieces of your life have been hard to maintain? What kind of addictions did you have before that have just exploded now? How can you begin to turn all those sufferings over to Jesus so that as you heal from those things, there also might be redemptive uh, narratives be told in those stories? Because think of the ultimate redemption narrative that comes from the cross. I mean, that's like the most horrific thing we can think of and yet the redemption that comes from the cross is forgiveness of sins, right? Jesus becomes king. Like the Bible is intentionally pointing out that Jesus gets this crown of thorns and then a, a robe tied around him. Is that mocking? Yeah, uh, the Romans are making fun of him. Oh, you think you're a king, Jesus? Fine. Here's your kingly robes. And they, they're making fun of him. But the Bible is intentionally leaving those details in because it's telling us that this is Jesus becoming king in this moment. The cross is not him uh, being belittled to nothing. The cross is how he enters resurrection, how he puts on a new glorious humanity that no longer can be extinguished or stomped out or killed. 
the cross is a story of a king. The, the, that, that's the moment where Jesus is enthroned over the world, where Satan and all the principalities and powers of the spiritual realm that the Bible talks about, that Jesus puts them to shame and Jesus rises up over them. It's the story of how Jesus conquers Satan. Like, the Bible shows Satan entering into Judas. I think it's Luke who says that explicitly. And once Satan has entered into Judas, he then goes and, and puts Jesus on a cross. Satan had a part in the horrors that were put upon Jesus. Just as in Revelation, the beast, which is also Satan, has this part and putting all of the martyrs to uh, death in all the different ways in which they are killed. Those are the stories that that happen when the beast, when Satan shows up. But what the cross shows theologically, Paul says that like if the principalities and powers knew what they were doing when they killed Jesus, they would have never have done it. Because when Satan tried to kill Jesus, he did the one thing that you can't do to a sinless man the the curse of death is upon humanity because they sin but jesus never sinned and so when you killed jesus you find out like this was a bait and switch satan didn't kill jesus like just out of his own idea god was actually tricking satan into it all right you want to you want to kill him huh come on go ahead do it see what happens and when he does it he finds out that like Jesus descends into the underworld, grabs the keys of death from Satan, and then ascends back to earth. You can't leave the underworld, by the way, but Jesus just does it. Does it. He ascends back to earth in a resurrected form, and then ascends into heaven, which I guess the resurrected body is capable of doing somehow. Like, Jesus overthrows all of the rules that we know and out of that comes king jesus who can now lead people into the afterlife into the age to come when heaven comes back down to meet the earth and collides into a new creation where heaven and earth become one and those who live on in that place are those who have um called jesus king through the cross of forgiveness and the cross of exaltation. That's the story of where horrors lead in Christianity. And of course, in that new world, whatever revelation means by it, those who were beheaded, those who were martyred, kind of have these extra... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. Glories, gifts... Uh, reward is probably a better word. Uh, word uh, a reward of the thousand years of the first resurrection, whatever that means, right? Horrors are not fun. Nobody wants it, but it is in our Bible, and it is the chief way Jesus endures the horrors, or as Paul says, like sin became very sinful. Jesus uh, saw sin become very sinful, and then he endured it himself. And by doing that, he took it all upon himself, conquered Satan, became king of the cosmos, and is redeeming all who follow him. And then one day will redeem the entirety of the world. All of that based around horror story. 
So yeah, if horrors are used to like glorify it, uh, the themes of horrors, no, that's that's gross. That's grotesque. That's a uh, that's an exaltation of Satan, right? That's focusing on the beast who's behind the horrors. But if horrors are a part of a Christian story, as we discuss right now in this Halloween episode of of the Twelve Oy Bittner Church podcast, if horrors are a part of the story, that's not unusual. That's unfortunately Christian. Horrors are a part of our story and they're difficult to endure, but they do come up. And I think this Christianity that's been written for us where like everything will just be perfect if you get saved, that is not the gospel as it is written. It is great when that happens, and I'm not saying like go look for horrors. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying at all. But like that is uh, um, not promised to us. That is a happy bonus when when things go well. So with all that being said, just want to kind of give us a, a little bit of a discussion between horrors and uh, the theme when it comes up in, in uh, our media and where it belongs in our Bible. It's a big part of the story. Um, I'll kind of just end with this quick thing. Uh, I've seen two movies in the last month, both of which I knew nothing about going into, which is not always a great idea when you're going to go see movies, and then found out that they both had horrifying themes on the same exact theme in both of them. They're not even movies I would necessarily recommend because, especially if uh, you have trauma in your own life, these ones were very hard to stomach. But watching these horror stories actually made me more aware of the horrors that people go through uh, in in the world today that I'm unfamiliar with, that I myself have not experienced. And it, it caused my heart to like actually like be warm to people going through this stuff. It's caused me, caused me to be more conscious of the way in which people would process this stuff, would go through this stuff. And it's actually been helpful to me. Now, that's two examples of horrors being used in stories to actually bring about something redemptive in myself, uh, whereas um, other horror movies might go on to just like, you know, glorify violence and death and and grotesqueness. And that's not what we're looking for. Um, But occasionally it can bring about growth and redemption in ourselves if we allow it to convict us and gross. Okay, with that, this is a part of the 1208-Bit Nerd Church podcast. You can join us for Nerd Church on Mondays from 5.30 to 9 o'clock, either in person or via our Discord chat. Find the link in the information on this video or podcast episode, depending on where you're listening to it. And uh, you can join in our hybrid online in-person model. Otherwise, if you want to discuss this uh, podcast, head to our Discord and uh, you'll find the podcast list and you continue that conversation there. With that being said... Have a happy Halloween. In other words, just go eat a lot of candy.